Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I want to thank you for listening and ask you to please look around this site. We've got over 3,400 audios featuring great preachers, persecution stories from North Korea and other lands, Bible studies. My books are on Amazon.com, and you can contact me at bob.j.faulkner.72 at gmail.com. And I'm also asking that you check out my new website that allows you to tune in to the new Hackberry Radio. Just go to hackberryhouseofchosun.com and take a look and a listen. Reading today from a book entitled The Christian in Complete Armor by William Gurnall, the English Bible scholar and pastor who died in 1679. He's very, very slowly going through Ephesians 6. He's now in verse 12, and he's talking about the grounds of war, the grounds. The last phrase in the description of our grand enemy is somewhat ambiguous in the original text. Most translators read it in high places or heavenly places as though the apostle wanted to stress the advantage of place which our enemy has by being above us. And yet some interpreters, both ancient and modern, read the words not in heavenly places but in heavenly things. This would mean that Paul is saying, in essence, we do not wrestle for small or trivial things but for heavenly things. In fact, for heaven itself. This seems to me to be the preferred interpretation for several reasons. First, the same word used in other passages of Scripture is translated to mean things. It appears almost 20 other times in the New Testament, is never interpreted to mean an aerial place, but always to mean things truly heavenly and spiritual. If the word did mean place, then it would signify a, a super-celestial location and would therefore be an area where the devil cannot go. Second, what would be the purpose in pointing out that Satan is above us in place? If we know anything about spirits at all, we know that by their very nature they are above us. Uh, being immaterial, not confined to flesh and bone, gives them this advantage. But if we interpret the word as meaning things... Then it adds weight to all the other branches of the description we have been studying in depth. Now it means we wrestle against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness for the greatest prize of all, for that which heaven itself holds forth. Such an enemy and such a prize make it a matter of our greatest care how we manage the combat. And so, A, the saints heavenly calling. What then is Paul's premise? Simply this, that we are in a life-or-death struggle with Satan himself. All our hopes are fixed on heaven. In other words, Satan's main design is to plunder the Christian of all that is heavenly, which is the same as to leave him destitute. The Christian, as a Christian, is an alien on earth. All he has or desires is heavenly. So whatever happens here below is quite apart from his being or, or true happiness and interferes with neither his joy nor his grief. Heap all the riches and honors of the world upon a man, they will not make him a Christian. Heap them on a Christian, they will not make him a better Christian. 
Again, take them all away. When stripped and naked, he will still be a Christian and perhaps a better one. Satan could do the sincere saint little harm if he directed his forces only against his outward enjoyments, because they mean nothing to him in comparison with his spiritual inheritance. Indeed, Satan's attack on a Christian's earthly possessions should do him no more harm than a robber does to a man if he strips him naked and then proceeds to beat the man's clothes as they lie on the ground in a heap. Insofar as the spirit of grace prevails in a saint's heart, he has put off his desire for the things of the world. Therefore, his heavenly treasure is the booty that Satan waits for, his nature, his occupation, his hopes. Now, the Christian's nature is heavenly, born from above. As Christ is the Lord from heaven, so all his offspring are heavenly. The holiness of Christ in you reminds Satan of his own first estate. He has lost the beauty of holiness forever, and now, like a true apostate, he endeavors to ruin it in you. God stamps his image of holiness on the face of your soul. This attribute of beauty is what makes us most like God. How God longs to see his clear likeness reflected in his children, and his true children long to be like him. Satan knows this and works tirelessly to disfigure the divine image. Marring the Christian's nature brings shame to the saint and pours contempt upon God in distorting his likeness. Is it not worth risking life and limb against this enemy who would annihilate that which makes us like God himself? And then the Christian's occupation is heavenly. That is to say, God is our overseer. We may plant our seeds here on earth, but our crop will be harvested in heaven. This keeps our hearts and desires on a celestial plane. In a spiritual sense, the Christian's feet stand where other men cannot even see. He treads on the moon and is clothed with the sun. He looks down on earthly men as one from a high hill looks upon those living in a swamp. While he breathes in pure heavenly air, they are suffocating in a fog of carnal pleasures and profits. He knows one heavenly pearl is worth infinitely more than the earthly accumulation of a whole lifetime. The great business of a saint's life is to be doing things that enlarge the kingdom of heaven. Not only is he interested in his own welfare, but he eagerly recruits his friends and neighbors to join in his eternal enterprise. Now this alarms hell. What? Not content to go to heaven himself, but by his holy example and faithful work will be trying to carry them along with him also? This brings the lion raging out of his den. Such a Christian, to be sure, will find the devil in his way to oppose him. And then the Christian's hopes are all heavenly. He does not expect lasting satisfaction from anything the world has to offer. Indeed, he would think himself the most miserable person to have ever lived if the only rewards he could expect from his religion were on this side of eternity. No, it is heaven and eternal life that he anticipates. And though he is so poor that he cannot leave one cent in his will, yet he counts himself a greater heir 
than if he were a child of the greatest prince on earth. Hope is the grace that shows us how to rejoice in the prospect of promised glory. It sits beside us in the worst of times. When things are so bad that we cannot imagine how they could possibly get worse, hope lifts our eyes from our immediate troubles and places them on our future eternal joys. We can smile even in the face of our persecutors, knowing that in only a short time the cross will be lifted from our shoulders forever, and the earthly crowns will be lifted from the heads of those in the devil's service. Their portion of joy will all have been spent, but the Christian will be given an endless supply. An understanding of this truth fills the Christian with such joy he will not listen to the devil's lies about God's faithfulness or faithlessness or lack of concern. Shutting his ears to Satan's taunts, he opens his heart to the promises in God's word and rests on them. His peaceful attitude torments the devil who cannot bear to see the saint under full sail for heaven filled with the sweet hope of a glorious celebration when he reaches that port. And so he raises whatever storms and tempests he can, hoping to cause a shipwreck or at the very least force the saint to cripple into heaven's harbor empty-handed. Well, next, a call worth fighting for. We see by considering the intensity of Satan's attack on our spiritual inheritance the necessity of the saint's perseverance in wrestling against him. Now a word of reproof to four sorts of persons. First, to those who refuse to wrestle. There are many who, instead of taking heaven by force, keep it off by force. How long has the Lord been crying in the streets, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and yet to this day millions drive madly on toward hell, and will not turn back. They willfully refuse to be called the children of God. They choose the pleasures of sin over the riches of heaven, preferring to die in their sins rather than admit they need Christ's pardon. What foolish pride! A historical parallel illustrates the stupidity of such thinking. Cato and Caesar were bitter enemies. When Caesar came to power, Cato knew he would have to appeal to his arch-rival, if his life were to be spared. Rather than humble himself, he committed suicide. Upon hearing the news, Caesar cried, O Cato, why did you begrudge me the honor of saving your life? Now, do not many walk as if they were begrudging Christ the honor of saving their souls? What other reason can you give, sinner, for rejecting his grace? Are heaven and happiness repugnant to you? Can you honestly say you do not want them? Why then do you not accept them? For the love of God, think what you are doing. You are fighting against eternal life, and in so doing, you judge yourself unworthy of it. Secondly, to those who neglect to wrestle. You would be hard-pressed to find a person who would not rejoice for his soul to be saved at last. But where is the Christian who by his vigorous effort shows he is in earnest? For most, if wishing could bring eternal life, they'd be happy to enter heaven's gates. But if it means wrestling and fighting and making their faith top priority, well, they're not so sure. 
Too many people waste their lives away, wishing the way to heaven were easier, but unwilling to get busy and seek the grace they need for such an enterprise. They need to see that wrestling for the Lord promises a sure victory, while wrestling against him is a guarantee of defeat. The misery of the damned will be compounded when they fully understand what they have lost in losing God, and when they remember all the means once offered them which could have gotten them eternal life. When it is too late, they will regret they had no heart to take Christ's offer. Thirdly, to those who only pretend to wrestle. I'm speaking now of those individuals who make a lot of noise about their religion, but who secretly have their hearts set on earthly goals. They pretend to be heaven-bound, but their hearts are full of hypocrisy. Such deceivers are like the eagle who, when he soars highest, has his eye fixed on some carnal prey on the ground. Hypocrites have always been and ever will be a part of the crowd, thronging into the church and mingling with the true saints of God. Their speech is pure, their service admirable, but their hearts are lined with deceit. Worst of all, they fool even themselves. The world may mistakenly call them saints, but Christ knows they are devils. What did he say about the master hypocrite, Judas? Have I not chosen you twelve? and one of you is a devil. Truly, of all devils, none is as bad as the professing devil, the preaching, praying devil. God has repeatedly shown his severe displeasure when his so-called people have prostituted sacred things to worldly ends. Of all men, God strikes with greatest speed the one who gilds over worldly and wicked business with holy pretensions. God has made a solemn promise, I will set my face against that man, I'll make him a sign and a proverb, and I'll cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And then fourthly, those who keep others from wrestling. Among thieves, there's often a scout who searches out where the booty is to be had. He is the brains behind every illicit operation, but he never risks his own neck by actually committing a crime. The devil uses this same tactic by watching how a Christian walks, where he goes, whose company he enjoys. Then he decides the best way to rob him of his grace. When the plan is set, he sends someone else to carry it out. Thus he sent Job's friends and even Job's wife to tempt him. He sent Potiphar's wife to entice Joseph. Friend, ask yourself whether or not you have ever done the devil some service of this kind. Have you ever had a child whose heart was tender toward God, but you were too busy to take him to church or teach him the ways of the Lord? Perhaps now he has grown, has no time for the things of Christ at all. Or perhaps your spouse was full of enthusiasm and faith, but living with your cold spirit and bitter attitude has doused the flame that once burned so brightly. How do you suppose the indictment will read when you are brought before the bar on Judgment Day? It was not enough for you to reject Christ yourself. You had to intimidate those who wanted to wrestle their way to heaven. A terrible offense indeed, and you thereby lay up to yourself wrath against the day of wrath. 
Next time when we get together, a word of caution to those who desire a heavenly prize. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.